0: Welcome to Stories from an Island. I'm Mark Borbus. In this fiction podcast, I read stories I've written in my ongoing attempt to make sense of the world around me. These are all works of fiction, so any resemblance to people alive or dead is purely coincidental. Thanks for taking the time to listen. This episode contains mature content, so if you're one of my kids, one of their friends, or easily offended, you should skip this one. Today's episode is the third chapter in a story series entitled A Fairy Tale. First off, a quick recap of chapter two. Our protagonist, Barbara, barely survives her first set of guests, who unleash a tirade of poor feedback on TripAdvisor. Tail between her legs, Barbara flees the island to visit her mother in the hospital. She walked to the nurse's station and was directed to her mother's room. She took a deep, calming breath and traced the 25 meters down the hallway. She knocked lightly on the door. Hello, came the reply. It was a deep male voice. She drew back and looked at the sign on the door. Below her mother's name was a second name, Walter Nutsacky. Barbara smiled at the thought of her mother in a shared room, with a man, and his name was honestly just icing on the cake. She opened the door just enough to squeeze through, peeking around the edge to make sure she didn't hit anything. She needn't have worried as the room was far larger than she'd imagined. She stepped into a large entry space. A wall-mounted headboard and equipment remained, but the bed closest to the door was gone. A solitary bed was positioned on the far side of the room, by the window. "'Where's my mom?' Barbara asked. "'She had a little stroke about an hour ago,' replied the occupant of the lone hospital bed. "'What?' "'You must be Barbara.' "'Yeah?' She replied. Her eyes fixed on the man in the bed. He looked back at her, and he had a kind face. Looked a bit like Wilfred Brimley from the Quaker Oats commercials. Tears clouded Barbara's eyes. So that's it? She's gone? The man's eyes widened. No, no, she's fine. They just took her to another ward for closer observation, he explained. Okay, she said, regaining her composure. Nice bedside manner, Walter. It did happen right after I read her a few of the recent TripAdvisor reviews for her bed and breakfast, he ventured. Barbara's eyes welled up again. Her face crumpled like she'd been punched. Sorry, sorry, that was too soon, I guess, Walter apologized. Jesus, yes, too soon. Again, sorry. I don't get out much, and when I do, it's for coffee with a bunch of geezers like me. If we didn't joke about our health, we'd all be lacing our double-doubles with cyanide and taking the long nap. He winced as he saw the expression on her face. Maybe I'll just stop talking for a bit, he offered. Barbara stared at the spot where her mother's bed had been. The flooring was darker, where the bed had covered it. Unswept dirt or protection from the weak sunlight from the small window on the opposite wall? Her eyes drifted upwards to the wall, where a thin network of dust and cobwebs played across it, where the head of the bed usually stood. There were bare patches where the cobwebs had been torn away by the bed's movement. And above these sat a call button and a power outlet, and a narrow shelf with a lone tissue box on it. The special relationship between all these items looked awkward without the bed. The shelf was too high, the outlet was stranded in the middle of the wall, and the tissue box was too low to grasp if you were standing and too high if you occupied the lone chair in the room. None of it made sense without the bed. The bed really pulled the room together. There was a light knock on the door. Yes, called Walter. His voice snapped Barbara out of her trance. The door swung open only a foot. A man in a white coat slid through the opening and flashed a quick smile at Walter. Hello, Walter, he nodded and then turned to Barbara. Are you Mrs. Watson's daughter? Yes, I'm Barbara. Hi, Barbara, I'm Dr. Hernandez. Your mother's hip surgery was successful, but then she had a stroke this morning. Barbara had an English teacher in grade 10 who used to rail on about the use of but in student writing. A but was a cheap way to shift focus or change tone. It also interrupted and irritated the reader. The but was meant to soften the listener up for the message that came next, but it often had the reverse effect. It presented as a mild stroke, but, Dr. Hernandez continued, shortly after we got her to the ICU, she fell into a coma. At the edge of her vision, a corner of the dust-encrusted cobweb detached from the wall, rippled gently, and peeled itself off in a large sheet. It landed in a dirty heap and slithered across the floor. It stopped when it hit her shoe. She lifted her foot. The bundle of dirty cobwebs came with it. She put her foot back down again and looked up to Dr. Hernandez's face. He was staring at her shoe, also transfixed for a moment. Then he snapped his head up to meet her gaze. Would you like to see her now, he asked. Is there any point, Barbara countered. The doctor looked at her in surprise. No one had ever asked him that question. What do you mean, he stalled for time. I mean, she's out cold, right? Yes, he trailed off at a loss for words. An uncomfortable silence dropped over the room. They say someone in a coma can hear the voices around them, right, Doc? Walter added. The doctor looked relieved to be asked a question he could answer. That's right, Walter. We think they can still hear, even if they're unresponsive. Sometimes the voice of a loved one will bring them out of the coma. Oh, okay, great. Let's get her out of that coma so she can take over her B&B and I can get back to my life, Barbara replied. Any chance she'll have short-term memory loss and forget about the bad reviews I've been getting? I don't want to alarm you, Barbara, but the recovery from hip surgery takes months, and we don't yet know the impact the stroke may have had. The body goes into a coma to protect itself when it experiences significant trauma, the doctor replied. The reality began to sink in. She was going to have to run the B&B and take care of her mother. Knowing her luck, her mother would be unable to move, but fully capable of sitting on a chair in their kitchen and criticizing everything Barbara did. Oh, shit, she exclaimed. Would you like to see her now? the doctor asked again. Yeah, I guess so. Why don't you follow me then, he suggested, and opened the door. Barbara obeyed his instructions like a well-behaved kindergartner. She fell in step behind him, walking mechanically out the door. Say hi for me, hollered Walter. Barbara spun and fixed him with a shocked look. You just don't know when to stop, do you? she asked incredulously. I'm serious, he pleaded with a wounded look. Oh, never mind. Barbara turned back and passed through the door. Dr. Hernandez was already fifteen steps down the hall. Nurses and aides shifted to the other side of the hallway in a subtle show of deference to him. Barbara didn't want to run, so she took a few double-time steps, looking like a gangly first-time speedwalker. No one seemed to notice. They were caught up in their own tasks and journeys. A hospital was a good place to be anonymous. Everyone either had something wrong with them, or were helping someone who did. So the curiosity and judgment that permeated every other public space was muted here. Once she got within five steps of the doctor, she slowed down, and savored this liminal space where she could move unseen like a ghost in the hallway. No one met her eye, nor even looked her way. They looked down, around, or even through her. She was alone and invisible, and yet surrounded by people. It was freeing. And then it was over. Dr. Hernandez held the elevator door open for her. They began the familiar, uncomfortable dance two people perform in elevators. They made eye contact. The doctor flashed a quick, wry smile, then both looked away. Dr. Hernandez studied his clipboard. Barbara analyzed the elevator button layout. The machine ground slowly upwards as if pulled by an unwilling sloth. Enough time passed that each felt compelled to say something to the other. The tension built until Dr. Hernandez stepped into the breach. I tell administration that I could see six more patients a day if they could speed up this elevator. Mm Mm-hmm, mumbled Barbara in response. Five more excruciating seconds passed before the doors mercifully opened. She fell in step behind the doctor again. He nodded and said hello without slowing to several doctors and nurses they passed. Barbara coasted along unnoticed in his slipstream. She was invisible again, in the liminal space, like a skier who catches up with the wind at her back and enjoys a moment of perfect calm, with no pressure from any side a moment punctuated only by her own breath and the soft swish of her skis against the snow. The doctor slowed in front of a door and opened it for Barbara to pass through. She stepped tentatively inside. Her mother was lying on the bed covered in a blanket. She looked small and old. When had she gotten so old? A heart rate monitor bleeped slowly, marking the seconds of her mother's slumber. I'll leave you two alone. Dr. Hernandez said softly as he pulled the door closed. Wait, what am I supposed to do? Barbara asked. Talk to her. Can she hear me? The doctor shrugged and tugged the door closed. The noise from the hallway faded as Barbara returned her gaze to her mother. Hi, Mom, she ventured. The doctor says you might be able to hear me. She walked closer to the bed and touched her mother's shoulder. The heart rate monitor bleeped. Barbara snatched her hand back. Her mother remained still. The monitor bleeped again, echoing the cadence of Dorothy's resting heart. Barbara reached out again and shook her mother's shoulder. She waited and watched. Nothing happened. Emboldened, she leaned over her mother and pried her right eyelid open. She used to do this as a child on Saturday mornings, when she was hungry for breakfast and her mother wouldn't wake up. The monitor bleeped again, surprising her again, But her mother remained still. Just checking. Barbara took a deep breath and exhaled. I hope all your guests aren't entitled jerks like the ones that stayed last night. Thank God they cut their visit short. I would have carved my eyeballs out if they'd come back for another night. They totally trashed me on TripAdvisor, which is bogus, and I had TripAdvisor launch a full scale investigation. Just so you know. She looked over to see if there was any reaction from her mother. Nothing. She couldn't remember the last time she'd been able to talk to her mother for so long without being interrupted with advice or criticism, or her mother's favorite, criticism cloaked as advice. Barbara sighed. I know. I'm sure not every guest is perfect, and you've had your fair share of jerks, too. Look, Mom, I'll take one more swing at it, and then you can come back and take over. Okay? She pulled out her phone. I'm going to call in sick for my next shift on the ferries. She logged into the employee portal and booked the sick time. There. Done. Now Falcon's Nest will get my undivided attention for the next five days. She looked over at her mother again. Don't worry. I won't fuck it up too badly, she said, as she got up to leave. Barbara walked out of the hospital and towards her car. She looked at her watch. With a bit of luck, she could catch the 5 p.m. ferry. She rounded the corner into the residential neighborhood. The back of the black SUV loomed large midway down the block. She could see the whole back of it, including the stick figure family stickers around the license plate. The stick dad was doing a squat with his hands lifting the license plate holder. The stick figure mom was lying prone on top of the license plate holder with a martini in hand. The stick kids scattered across the trunk lid, appearing to play a dozen sports between them. A red and white UFC 192 sticker lurked close to the bumper and chrome testicles hung off the trailer hitch. She could see all of this because the view was unobscured by a car. Her car. Her car was gone. As she got closer, the black-clad man stepped back onto his porch. Busters told it about an hour ago. You are hanging too far over the edge of the sign, and someone complained they couldn't get out of their driveway, he yelled across the expanse of manicured lawn. He motioned to his own driveway and smirked. Without a word, Barbara turned on her heel and walked back the direction she came from. She'd been to the buster's lot in Victoria a few times and knew where to find it. As she spotted the sign on the chain-link fence, she could hear the yard dogs beginning to snarl and growl. One approached the fence, bared its teeth, and growled at her. She grabbed a stick lying on the ground and began running it along the fence, making a loud clanging noise. The dog whimpered and ran away. She was buzzed in the front gate and walked up to the office. A rangy, mid-thirties man stared her down. He wore a greasy Molson Canadian hat, parked on his unkept mullet. His shirt identified him as Clint. Hi, Clint, she said. How'd you know my name, he asked, with a slack-jawed look that showed off every one of his seven front teeth. I have a gift. Fucking right you do, he said. What can I do you for? My red hatchback was towed in about an hour ago. Clint looked at the clipboard on his desk. He scanned up and down the rows with a grubby finger. Yeah, got it. You were blocking a residential driveway. Barbara opened her mouth and then thought better of it. $100 tow fee plus 25 for a day of storage plus tax. He looked at Barbara, then looked around the otherwise empty room. And a sly smile crossed his face. How about $100 cash, he said lowering his voice and leaning across the counter on his elbows. Barbara leaned over the counter and noted that Cliff's eyes were drawn to her chest. Do you have a girlfriend, Cliff? she asked. Sure do, he said, his eyes still fixated on her chest. I run a bed and breakfast on Salt Spring. How about a free, romantic night for you and your lady? Cliff looked momentarily disappointed. Then he drew back and squinted. There's some kind of candid camera bullshit? Nope, it's legit. A free night at Falcon Nest B&B. Cliff pulled out his phone and screwed up his face in concentration. His tongue danced out of the corner of his mouth like Billy the Bee on a box of Honey Nut Cheerios. He kept tapping on his phone. Finally, he took a breath. Just checking in with my girl, he said. Good idea. His phone honked like the General Lee. She likes the idea. She's checking it out now. Then his face clouded over. She said it only has 3.7 stars, so no dice. He looked up and leveled her with a steely gaze. My lady is classy. Has to be four stars or more. Barbara pulled out her debit card and paid the full bill. Cliff tossed her the keys and pointed to the left of the office. She walked out and found the car, and then she doubled back into the office. I need a boost. This earned her another untrusting look. Fine, he said, collecting his keys and a tire iron from behind the counter. He made sure she saw the tire iron. Ten minutes later, Barbara was on the road again. She looked at her watch. 4.25. She wasn't going to make the five o'clock, so she pulled off into the seaside village to read books for free at the bookstore. Later that evening, she pulled up to her mother's house. A note was posted on the door. Hi, we're the Hudsons. We waited around for two hours and then left. Tried calling, too. Please cancel reservation. Barbara looked at her phone. It was 7.45. She had five missed calls. The last one came in at 7.30. Her phone dinged. You have a new review on TripAdvisor. Barbara trudged inside, slammed back the signature mimosa that had been sitting in the sink since breakfast, and fell into bed. She awoke early and made herself a cup of coffee. Heading down the hallway into her mother's office, she scanned down the guest schedule. The Morrisons were due to check in by five. Tony and Jim. I wonder how often they get teased. The hieroglyphics beside their names indicated that they were easy guests who kept to themselves and always arrived with their own car. Fucking right, Tony and Jim. I like you already, she exclaimed. Draining her cup of coffee on the way back to the kitchen, she noticed the rays of sun slanting through the skylights. It looked warm outside. She popped open the coffee maker and grabbed the used coffee pod. Fuck you, Keith, she laughed as she sky-hooked it into the garbage. She made another cup, grabbed a notepad and the phone, and padded out onto the deck. It was a warm day. Already, the air smelled faintly of Douglas fir and dry leaves. She could hear the crackle of the trees around her as the sun began baking them for another day. And she began a list. Wash, Keith, and Miranda's stank from the sheets. Cross that out. Jock could do whatever he wanted. The dirty bugger probably liked them just the way they were. Order shit from bakery and grocery store. She paused. There was some kind of schedule for ordering. Fuck the schedule, she said, dialing the bakery. A sweet teenage voice answered. Hello, Village Bakery, how may I help you? I'm calling from Falcon Nest to order stuff, said Barbara. Hang on a sec. Okay, so what do you need? What does my mother usually order? Let's see, last week she ordered five loaves of bread, two dozen danishes, a dozen cinnamon buns, two dozen muffins, and a dozen mini quiches. Okay, set me up with that again, Barbara declared. Can you deliver today? No, it's too late, I'm afraid. You'll have to come and pick it up. Okay, can you also add two Copenhagens to that order? Sure. Anything else? Nope, that's it. Bye. She hung up and immediately dialed the grocery store. Hello, country grocer, customer service, said the cheery voice on the other end of the line. Hi, I'm calling from Falcon Nest. Oh, hi, Barbara. Your mother told me you were stepping in for a few weeks. It's Cindy. Barbara was silent. Cindy was famous for dating the head bad boy in high school. Now they were married, and he ran the local septic tank cleaning business. Hey, Cindy, how's shit Rick? Barbara asked. Richard is fine, thank you, Barbara said Cindy in a condescending tone. How can I help you? I need food for the next guest assault. What does my mom usually order? Well, she typically shops seasonally and watches the sales flyer. It's too bad you didn't phone in your order yesterday. Your mom always takes advantage of 10% Tuesdays. Barbara sighed. You know what, Cindy? I'm just going to come in and shop myself. It's easier that way. Please give my best to Dirty Dick. She hung up before Sydney could respond and looked back at her list. It only had one item, and that was crossed out. So she picked up the pen and wrote again. Bakery, grocery store, liquor store, drink half bottle of wine before the next onslaught. You know, it felt good to get organized. She drained her coffee cup and walked back into the house. The clock on the microwave said 10.30. Plenty of time. The bakery stop was so easy she decided to reward herself with a latte from the coffee shop a short distance away. She sipped it slowly on the deck outside and chatted with friends who passed by. She ordered another coffee. The lunch crowd drifted in and out. She had a bowl of soup. She looked around to see if anyone was paying attention and then grabbed a Copenhagen out of the bakery bag. At three o'clock she stood up and took the bakery bag to the car. She had even gotten the hang of that trick with the key and wasn't parking on hills anymore. On her way to the grocery store, she decided to check out the thrift store. She met a few friends, and they got talking, and an hour later she was back on the road again to the grocery store. An hour was still plenty of time. To be safe, she reorganized her list to get to the liquor store first for a one-liter bottle of Screeching Owl. She couldn't bear to drink any more of that stuff her mother had. She pulled into the grocery store lot at 435 and it was full of cars. She was used to shopping at unusual hours because of her shift on the ferry. A cart smashed into her hip. Its wild-eyed driver was too busy staring at a list grasped in his claw-like hand. He was mouthing. Toopy ham Toopy ham over and over again as he read the purple scrawl on the paper. A smart car backed out of the special spot assigned to the pint-sized menaces and stopped mere inches from her before accelerating away. There were no carts in the corral by the door. It was Friday afternoon before a long weekend. Also known as the one time that usually kind and sleepy islanders lose their shit and turn into a frenetic zombie horde. This is because they're all desperately trying to get their chores done before the tourists arrive. Barbara braced herself. What the fuck would Jim and Tony eat for breakfast? She decided quickly on a fruit platter, Quaker instant oatmeal, orange juice, milk, sausages, and cream. She raced to the front to find every checkout lane stacked up at least four carts deep. Crazed shoppers were driving their carts back and forth like they were trying to win a race at the Bonneville Salt Flats. At least two ladies appeared to be meditating in the lineup. They winced occasionally. The Dharma was weak today. She had to make a split-second checkout line decision between the kid who talked aimlessly and sporadically stopped scanning and packing while he pontificated, and Cindy. Cindy's lineup was shorter as she was on customer service. Barbara wheeled her cart over to Cindy's line. As she loaded her items onto the counter, Cindy, of course, recognized her. Hi, Barbara, you sure picked a busy time. Hi, Cindy. Technically, this line is for five items and fewer, but I won't tell if you don't. My lips are sealed, said Barbara, with mock seriousness that went right over Cindy's head. Cindy bagged her groceries and Barbara was on her way. She looked at her watch, 4.50. If they were even ten minutes late, she'd have time to gun a few glasses of wine. After a few more near-death experiences in the parking lot, she got into the car. A man in the opposite aisle slammed the trunk on a Subaru Forester and hopped in without moving his cart. Wrenching the car into reverse, he bumped into the cart, sending it slowly rolling towards Barbara's car. He stepped on his brakes. Barbara made another split-second decision. She wiggled the key just so. The engine coughed to life. She popped the clutch and swung out of the spot just as the cart passed by the hood of her car and slid all the way down the side of a white Audi Q7 parked next to her. She grinned wildly. She pulled into the empty driveway, grabbed the groceries in the back seat, and walked swiftly inside. Depositing them on the counter, she grabbed her wine vase from the drying rack and poured a healthy measure. She downed a big gulp and slid onto one of the kitchen stools, sighing deeply with relief. Just as she took her last sip, the doorbell rang. She pulled a few stems from the dried flower arrangement, dropped them into the vase, and then trudged to the front door. A couple stood on the other side. He was tall, with salt-and-pepper hair, dressed in a smart polo shirt and chinos. She was up to his shoulder, dressed in a white t-shirt and jeans, with short blonde hair that looked purposefully messy. Barbara could see a white Audi Q7 in the driveway behind them. Hi, we are the Morrisons, he said. Of course, you're Tony, Barbara said, looking at him first. And you must be... Jim, she said to the woman. The couple stared at her. The woman opened her mouth to speak, but words didn't come immediately. I'm just shitting you, said Barbara. Come on in. The two exchanged a relieved look. He walked in the door with her close in tow. Are we in our usual room, he said as they walked down the foyer. Yep, said Barbara. They walked down the hall to the room Barbara had slept in the past few nights. She waited to see if they were going to complain about how rumpled the sheets were. Looks just like last time, Tony said. Nothing has changed. Jim turned to Tony. I told you nothing would be different, he said, and closed the door. Barbara walked straight to the fridge and retrieved the wine bottle. She replaced the dried flowers in the arrangement and filled the vase back up to a half inch from the rim. She walked out onto the deck and breathed in the fresh air as she sunk into the outdoor couch. Ten minutes later, she heard a soft voice say, Excuse me. Tony's head appeared through the sliding glass door. I don't want to disturb you, just wanted to let you know we're headed into town now. We'll be back by ten. Could we have breakfast at 8.45 tomorrow, she said. Sure, said Barbara. Enjoy your dinner. Thanks. Tony retreated into the house, and a few minutes later, the Audi coughed quietly to life, and she heard it roll down the driveway and turn onto the main road. Oh, that was easy, said Barbara to her glass of wine. She downed the glass of wine slightly slower than the last time, and then walked back into the kitchen and pulled a stouffer's dinner from the freezer. She heated it and consumed it without ceremony, accompanied by the last of the bottle of wine. She carefully tidied the evidence and then walked down the hall past the room she'd slept in the last few nights. Then she turned back and went into the room. A few quick tugs on the duvet made the bed look fresh. She fluffed the pillows and then wiped the bathroom sink out with toilet paper, dampened with a few drips from the faucet. She padded into the kitchen and grabbed a handful of chocolate peanuts. She deposited three on Tony's pillow, three on Jim's. A seventh one rolled under the cover. She raised her hand to her mouth. As she crunched on the remaining chocolate peanuts, she surveyed the room. The rise and fall of the American empire sat on one side of the bed, along with tortoiseshell reading glasses. Fifty Shades of Grey, the book club edition, sat on the other table, along with red-framed reading glasses. She left the room, closing the door behind her, and walked slowly down the hall to the closed door that read, Proprietress, her mother's room. She opened the door. A single bed, covered in a Laura Ashley comforter, tucked in within an inch of its life. Six pillows that covered nearly half the bed, an alarm clock, and a Bible sat on the night table. She grabbed the pillows and scattered them across the floor. Why don't you just stitch them all together, Mom? It would be way more efficient. Then you could spend even more time catering to your guests' every whim. She brushed her teeth with her mother's pink toothbrush, spat in the sink without rinsing the green paste down, and splashed her face with water. Walking back into the bedroom, she set the alarm for 8.20 and fell into bed. The room spun just a little as she lay down, but not enough to keep her from drifting off to sleep within three minutes. The alarm sounded like a submarine klaxon. Barbara bashed it into silence and groaned. She closed her eyes. The claxon went off again. She bashed it into silence and groaned. She closed her eyes. The claxon sounded again. She bashed it into silence, again, and this time swung her feet onto the floor. Stepping around and over the pillows strewn around the room, she made her way to the bathroom. The haggard, wild-haired woman that looked back at her from the mirror looked only somewhat familiar. She washed her face and rummaged through the bathroom drawers to find a hairbrush the alarm went off again. She found the off switch and checked the time. 8.37. She smoothed her clothes and walked out to the kitchen. She made herself a cup of coffee and started eating the Copenhagen. As the caffeine and sugar hit her bloodstream, she took down a basket, arranged one of the kitchen hand towels in it, and began opening the bakery bags, arranging two of each pastry in the lined basket. She crisscrossed the ends of the hand towel, covering the pastries like she'd seen them do for room service, and put the whole basket in the microwave for five minutes. She'd use this time to set two places at the bar, pour two glasses of orange juice, and dump the fruit platter into a bowl. The microwave beeped as Tony and Jim slunk into the kitchen. They sat down and looked at each other before turning to face Barbara. Tony's mouth opened, but again no sound came out, so she closed it again. Coffee? said Barbara, to fill the void. Yes, please, they said in unison. Barbara brewed two cups and placed them, along with cream and sugar, in front of her guests. Thanks, they said again in unison. Jim sipped his immediately, while Tony meditatively poured cream from the carton and stirred her coffee slowly. Barbara opened the microwave door to retrieve the pastry basket. A powerful aroma of bleach, Stouffer's lasagna, and wet straw burst from the microwave. She spun and dropped the steaming basket between Jim and Tony. He pulled aside one corner of the kitchen towel and reached for a pastry. Holy Dinah! he yelled. Barbara watched his face change from surprise to anger to determination. In just a few seconds, he looked at Tony before speaking. Barbara, your mother always left us a thank you card, he said. Oh, said Barbara. There was a long pause. We really appreciated the gesture. It was a very important part of our stay, said Tony. Oh, said Barbara, I'm not a big card person, but I really appreciate your business. You guys are super easy guests. If you could have met the last couple that were here, you'd realize just how grateful I am. Tony and Jim continued to stare at her, the same way she stared at people who couldn't figure out the ice cream vending machine on the ferry. Sorry, guys, said Barbara. Note taken for the next time can I get you anything else for breakfast? No, thank you, said Jim. We'll take a few pastries for the road. We have a long day ahead. They left the kitchen with a muffin and a cinnamon bun in their cups of coffee. Barbara sipped her coffee and ate her other Copenhagen. Five minutes later, the two trudged out of the room, fully packed. Thank you for your hospitality, Barbara, said Jim through a tense jaw. As he turned to walk to the door, Barbara noticed that a melted chocolate peanut had stuck in his neck hair. It bounced jauntily as he thundered down the hall. Goodbye, Barbara, said Tony, depositing their two empty coffee mugs on the table. She followed them to the front door. Jim was already in the car. Tony threw her duffel into the trunk and touched a button on the tailgate to close it. She walked out of sight to the passenger side. Jim rolled down his window and spoke to Barbara. Nice bit of driving in the grocery store lot, he said, pointing at Barbara's car, then at the long silver scrape that ran the whole length of the driver's side of his SUV. Barbara smiled nervously and waved. They left in a spray of gravel. She sighed and watched them disappear down the driveway. People are strange, said Jock, as he appeared from behind a clump of pampas grass. How did it go with the Morrisons? Not great, she said. They were really easy guests. They seemed tentative yesterday and then grumpy this morning. Maybe Jimmy still hasn't noticed what she's reading, he said. I could give her what she's looking for. He swished his machete, lopping off a tall pampas grass stem and then looking chagrined as he caught it and tried to stick it back upright. It fell over immediately. Maybe, said Barbara. They kept on about not getting a stupid thank you card. Jock nodded knowingly. Ah, yes, the Falcon Nest thank you card, a time-honored tradition, he said with a wink. What's the big deal? I told them how grateful I was for them being easy guests. There's a difference between telling and showing. Some people need you to show them the love. I don't get it. Jock paused. What do you mean, he said. I mean, I don't get why they made such a big deal over a stupid card. Your mother didn't tell you? Tell me what? Tell you that she slipped anyone from the Anglican diocese $100 for a Great Trip Advisor review. Whoa, whoa, back it up. My mother pays people off? Only members of the Anglican Church. Fuck me, that's a quarter of the population over 50. How does she make any money? Jock shrugged. Barbara turned to go back inside. While we're talking about things your mother may or may not have told you, he trailed off. Oh shit, what else? I used to perform certain services above and beyond my remit as head gardener, he said. Services of a sexual nature. And given your obviously stressed condition, perhaps I could help you out too. That's gross, Jock. Fuck off. Your mother negotiated a very reasonable fee of $50. I'll leave immediately afterwards if that's an issue. No! She shouted and stormed back into the house. She marched into her mother's office and scanned down the guest book. Every few entries, there was a small envelope icon. At $100 a pop, her mother had paid $1,200 in bribes since April. She scanned back a few pages $1,000, $900, $800. She flipped back several years. There was only a single icon on that page. Her mother's bribes had been steadily growing as she fought to preserve her TripAdvisor rating. Forty percent of June's revenues went out in payments. She scanned the pages again to double-check her numbers, and noticed another entry that appeared between lines on the guest register. Gardening, $50. There were more of those entries on the more recent pages as well. Oh, gross, Mom. Gross! She stared blankly at the guest book. Keith's last name was Trevor. Is there a Keith Trevor or maybe a Trevor Keith here, she said, mimicking what every year of school attendance and soccer camp and swimming lessons would have sounded like for Keith. Miranda's last name was Butt. <laughs> Barbara guffawed. They had paid $300 for their stay. She scanned up a line to Jim and Tony Morrison. They'd paid $80 a night. And if Jock was right, they would have received a $100 kickback. She grabbed a fresh piece of paper and divided it into five columns, which she titled New Guest Fees, Empty Nights, Old Guest Fees, Kickbacks, and Pervert Payments. Using her mother's 1980s Casio desk calculator, she began the tedious task of totaling up each month for the last two years. Fucking calculator, she said as she accidentally hit the clear button on the last line of a particularly complicated month. Halfway through, the calculator began loudly printing results on his little roll of paper. Barbara ignored it and plowed on. An hour later, she slumped back in the chair. The pattern was clear. New guest fees had been declining steadily month over month. Old guest fees and kickbacks were flat. Pervert payments were steadily growing. It's a Ponzi scheme, Mom. You're running a Ponzi scheme. New guests are funding discounts and kickbacks to get you good reviews in the hopes that these net you new guests. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.